Good morning. Would you pray with me? God, we pray that you would open the ears and the eyes of your servants here, Lord, to gaze upon your word and to be nourished by it. We also pray, Lord, for your servant who gets to speak, Lord, from your truth this morning. Be with us all, Lord, this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. What is spiritual warfare? What does it mean to conduct myself successfully in spiritual warfare? Is it like what we see coming out of Hollywood? Is it like the Hollywood movies we see? Is it like Ghostbusters? Do I need like objects? Do I need like a wooden cross and some holy water and garlic because spirits are afraid of garlic, apparently? Probably not, although spirits, both good and bad, are very real. So what is spiritual warfare? Is spiritual warfare more like the internal struggle against my own flesh and my sinful desires? Okay, that's a little bit closer, but I still think we're missing the true aim of the enemy. I think we're still missing the true target of our opposition, which is, you guys know what it is, which is the gospel. The target is the gospel. In the most unique and detailed and famous passage on spiritual warfare, Paul prays for the gospel. He doesn't pray against demonic possession. He doesn't pray for exorcisms. He doesn't pray even for sanctification. He doesn't pray that we would grow and not be immature, which we normally expect. He prays for and against the enemy who plans for the deep proclamation of the gospel. The target is the gospel. The end game objective of the enemy is to decommission the Great Commission, to paralyze your proclamation of the gospel, to ground the good news of Christ going out from your life. You see, the enemy, he knows he can't separate us from the love of God, but he sure can separate you from sharing that love of God to others, can't he? And so while your battles may include fighting against your flesh, for sure, that's in the Bible. The war isn't over sanctification. The war is over magnification. Will we magnify the gospel? Will we magnify the glory of the gospel? Will we make much of the gospel in our lives by proclaiming it with words, with our mouths? So that, that's spiritual warfare. That's the question. Not, that's the enemy's focus. Not will we grow, but will we go? Will we go? And so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, and pages 979 in our Blue Bible. And our big idea this morning is we stand against the enemy by making sure the gospel doesn't stand still. Okay? We stand against the enemy by making sure the gospel doesn't stand still. So starting in verse 10, we, Paul lays out for us the believer's strategy. We stand with strength. What do we need to stand against the enemy? What do we need to keep the gospel moving? We need strength. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. So Paul kicks off this very exhortive section. It's been likened to a military address. It's full of commands full of commands, because and Paul has something important to say. He signals this with that word, finally, finally. He's just got done addressing in Ephesians 5 passages that we're very familiar with. 
He's covered what individuals should do in Ephesians 4. He's talked to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5. He's talked to children, families, and now he addresses all of us with a single instruction. He sees us as an army. You're more than a husband, more than a wife, more than a, a child. You are a soldier in God's army. And what do soldiers need to know? What is this important instruction that Paul has for us? He says, he lays out the beginning of our strategy, first to be strong. Note the source of our strength. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. The source of your strength, a believer's strength, is singular. It's divine. It's not of man. It's not of the world. It's of God. It's singular. It's exclusive. It's outside of ourselves. It's not a human strength. Be strong in the Lord, in His might. There's no room to think that we're supposed to have a skill set in ourselves, to to have expertise in our own strength. We're told to be strong in the Lord, in His might. We notice in verse 11, so that's that's one part of our strategy, to be strong. Next is to be armored, to be heavily armored. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. We note here that also the source of the armor is of God. So God alone provides both the strength and the armor we need to stand against the enemy. We note here the the verb put on. Here it, it denotes that the protection is not automatic. The armor is not automatic. This is not like Iron Man. Like we don't have like a Jarvis. Like the armor is not automatic. If I do not intentionally, consciously put on the armor, I don't get to receive its benefits. I am not protected. God provides, but if I don't proactively put it on, it's useless. So we need to put it on. It's not automatic. Also note, every time the armor is mentioned, it's mentioned with that adjective, whole. The armor is not meant to be seen as pieces, as fragments. I don't get to say, I think today feels more like a day where I'm going to need the helmet, or I'm going to need the belt, or I'm going to leave everything else behind. We're meant to see it as a whole. Okay, as a whole. I need to put it on fully. And so Paul paints our strategy to be strong, to be armored, and so that we can stand. The strength and the armor helps us to stand. See in the text, put on, be strong, put on, that you may be able to stand. And his readers would have picked up on something. This sounds a lot like a famous Greek hero, and they would have been familiar with a famous Greek poet, author, Homer. Okay, And this strong, standing, armored warrior sounds a lot like Achilles. Okay, Achilles. And Achilles had armor from the gods, fashioned and blessed by the gods. And when he put on the armor, he was unstoppable. He had strength like a god. And so Paul's strategy is saying to be like Achilles. Believers should be like Achilles. Strong, armored, so that we can stand with this open display of strength. Now, the original audience, they would have said, okay, divine source of strength, I get that, I get that. But they would ask Paul, which divine source? Which one, Paul? You see, they had a problem. The church in Ephesus, the Christians there, they had a problem. Ephesus, the city, was known as the city of demons. It was the center of magical, occult, dark arts, magic activity, all that kind of stuff. It was a one-stop shop where you could buy formulas and scrolls and incantations, different names of different gods that you could invoke. 
okay? Different formulas. You could buy little trinkets and, and jewelry to put on that stood for certain gods. You could buy idols and shrines. And why would you do this? You would do this because they offered you power, supposedly. These objects, they thought these objects are sayings. You could say a name of a god. You could say a phrase that had power innately in itself. And you would do this because you wanted to appease a god for blessing. You were seeking blessing. You were seeking to manipulate a deity to want something. You were trying to curse someone. You are trying to avoid being cursed by someone. You wanted protection from a supernatural force of evil. And so you'd buy these things. You would wear these things. And so you can see Paul's words here to have a single source, a single divine source of strength and of armor. It would challenge them. It would challenge their beliefs. And here the problem is syncretism. Syncretism was their temptation. Syncretism is where you take pagan beliefs and try to make it compatible with Christianity. And this is what the church in Ephesus, this is what the believers there would be tempted to do because they had so many other multiple sources of supposedly power to draw from. Now I want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about your last job application, what you sent in. When you're, when you're asked to list your strengths and weaknesses, I want you to think about that. What did you list for your strengths? Some of you have a, a LinkedIn profile and you put some buzzwords on there like strategic leader, right? Uh, cultural, futurist, I don't know, all those buzzwords. Okay, your strengths, your strengths. You are going to need to rethink your strengths and weaknesses when it comes to spiritual warfare. You're going to need to rethink what you think about your own strengths. You're going to need to rethink what you think about what it means to be strong, what it means to be weak, if you want to be useful in this war, if you want to be useful to God in proclaiming his gospel, if you want to be able to stand against the enemy. What does it mean to be strong? To be strong in the Lord. It sounds like one of those bumper sticker phrases that everyone talks about, but we don't really know what it means. The word here can be grow, to grow strong. And so when can I grow strong? Well, first let's talk about what the Bible's view of strength is. The Bible has a very low view of man's strength. In the Psalms, who, who's a runner here? Who, who's, who's good at running? Who's good at running here? Not me. I'm just asking you to raise your hands if you're good at running. Okay, you have a good mile time. You feel good about that. You have a good physique. You have, your calves are built to, to run very well. In the Bible, God says he's not impressed with the legs of a runner. He's not impressed. He doesn't treasure the legs of a runner. He's not impressed. Meh. Nothing to God. In the Psalms, the psalmist says, we don't trust in the bow. We don't trust in the arm that can bend it. We don't trust. Some trust in princes and chariots, but the psalmist says, we trust in the name of the Lord our God alone. So that's what the Bible thinks about man's strength. And how do we access God's strength? How can I grow and be strong in his might? It seems like the precondition is weakness. There's that verse at the end of 2 Corinthians. It's very famous that illustrates this. When is God's strength made perfect in you? When you're weak. Paul says, in my weakness, I boast in God's strength alone. Weakness seems to be the soil that God plants me in so that his strength can be made known to me. Weakness seems to be the context I need to be put in for God's strength to be made clear in my life. He is the lifter of our heads, but only if we're content to stay humble and weak something very hard and unnatural to do. We need to live there, live in that weakness, live in that neediness of God. God's strength is accessed through my weakness. 
Do you count your weakness before God as a strength? Do you count your weakness before God as a strength? Or, or is trusting in your strength a weakness? Is trusting in your strength your weakness? If the strength and the armor facilitates our standing, our ability to stand, then guess what the enemy will attack? He'll attack our source of strength. He will try to, he'll attack our center of gravity, try to get us be thrown off balance. He'll attack your supply line, your source of strength, which is in God. He'll try to replace God's strength with some sleight of hand, some misdirection. Replace it with your strength. Replace it with something else in the world. And he knows. The devil is very wise. He knows. He's read your profile. He knows your weakness. He knows your tendencies. He knows that ultimately, if you don't have God's strength, you're not going to be standing. You can't stand on an unauthentic, knockoff brand of false strength. And he knows. He's done the math. No strength or armor from God means you can't stand. Can't stand, the gospel won't go. Mission accomplished. And so we need, this morning, we need to see what circumstances where you're tempted to feel safe in your own strength, where you are tempted to feel safe in another source of strength. And then you need to quickly feel unsafe because you're not safe. You can't see it. You can't see the devil's getting ready to sweep the leg to take you quickly from standing to eating the dirt on the floor, leaving you and the gospel stranded. And so we need a firm foundation. We need the right source of strength only in God. But what, what and who are we standing against? What is this armor and this strength applied to? It's applied to the schemes of the enemy. Our second point, we stand against schemes. Verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Against schemes. Plural here, yet we know a singular goal. The devil ultimately only has one axe to grind against the gospel. The word schemes can mean methods, strategies. This implies there is a mind behind these attacks. There's a mind planning these things. It implies intelligence, a scheme implies a schemer, an intelligent designer, divisor. When you're attacked, and when you're spiritually attacked, in this case meaning that you're not taking out the gospel, it's planned. The devil has custom, customized and tailored a specific scheme for you to not take the gospel. He's very thoughtful that way, isn't he? You know that verse in Jeremiah that people talk about, uh, the Lord says, I know the plans that I have for you, you know, Everyone loves that verse. But no one thinks about how the devil has plans for us too. He has plans for your unplanned fourth weeks. If you don't plan for something, he's going to plan to use it. He's cited as the originator and author of these schemes as well. The devil. Schemes of the devil. His name means adversary. Also, his other names fit very well with his MO of being a schemer, a trickster. We're told in Ephesians 4 that he's an opportunist. He takes advantage of us, our situations, our sin. He's a prowling lion. He's a crafty serpent. He's disguised as an angel of light. He's a liar, and he's known as the father of lies. He fits very well with the strategy of being a trickster. And he's, unfortunately, not alone. We read in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Another reason why I think this is not talking about sanctification, but something more, 
but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's, that list is very intimidating, isn't it? This is who we wrestle against. Now, just a side note here that when I mention spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, this is not saying that there's evil in heaven. Heavenly places refers to that spiritual world, the realm where, that we can't see, the invisible realm where there's angelic warfare going back and forth that we can't see, but they can definitely see us, and it's definitely happening. The wrestling here fits well with the devil being a trickster, because in wrestling, it's not about brute strength, right? Wrestling is a sport of deception. If you're really clever, you can be good at wrestling. It's about tricks, about feints and fake-outs to use the, your opponent's weight against them. So again, the wrestling here calls us back to Paul's trying to let us know how dangerous the devil is, how dangerous our struggle against the schemes are, because he's so clever. And again, the fact that we're wearing armor during our wrestling shows that this is not a contest. This is not in the context of a contest, but the context of a battlefield, where the winner doesn't get a crown, the winner just gets to live another day. So the devil is a schemer, he's a wrestler, and lastly, in verse 16, we read that he's an archer. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So he's also an archer. Here, the flaming arrows refer to how back then they would you know, put some tar or pitch on the arrows and light it on fire, and then the soldier who has this, the, the word for shield in verse 16 refers to this huge shield that covers your whole body, and shields are made of, would be made of planks of wood, and they would soak leather and put it on the shields to ward off these flaming arrows. But eventually, in the heat of the sun, after so many flaming arrows, the shield would, the leather would dry up, and the soldier would be in danger. He would, he would have to ditch his shield and be open to attack. So you can see the devil is a scheming, clever opponent. And again, Paul's readers, we know our strategy. We're supposed to be like Achilles. And here the readers would, would know that Paul is likening the devil's strategy to another famous Greek character, Odysseus. Odysseus, the master tactician who came up with the Trojan horse plan. And he was also an excellent archer. So, so, so far, Paul's setting up Achilles versus Odysseus, the believers versus the devil. And we need to keep this in mind for later. But what do the schemes look like? If the devil's not playing connect four, but he's playing chess, he's thinking 20 moves ahead of you. He has schemes. What, 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 what do the schemes look like? What is the devil really targeting in your life to get you to keep gospel proclamation in your blind spot, to keep you from it? Do you ever, feel, you ever get the idea, you ever get the feeling that you feel like you're being herded, like you're being herded towards something? Throughout your day, you just feel like someone doesn't want you to do something. Like some, just out of, from a bunch of circumstances or things that happened that day, maybe you had an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, meet with a friend, share the good news, invite someone to church, but then you felt something like kind of just heard you away from it. it. Not a sinful thing. It could be a very innocuous, ordinary thing, but I think the devil can weaponize the innocuous, the ordinary circumstances to keep you from spreading the gospel. What do the schemes look like? How can the devil kind of do enough just to get me to not talk about the gospel with someone, for me to not think about the gospel, but then stay off the radar, to not get noticed, you know, be clever that way? I think about uh, cleaning. Got some organized people in this room. 
want, like, like to clean your home, keep your home tidy, like to keep your lawn, your outdoors, kind of your backyard tidy. That's okay. That's not a sin. It can, in fact, it can be very godly to do that. It reflects a certain dignified life, organized life. Great. So I don't want anyone thinking, I don't want the teens leaving this and thinking, today I learned the sermon that cleaning my room is of the devil. No. But I think the devil can use, can use it against us in some way. He can take advantage of the situation if I don't take advantage of it to proclaim the gospel. I think the devil would be pleased if we cleaned our homes for the next 20 years, but beyond the purpose of making it pretty, we never used it for anything else. I never invited anyone to my home, but I kept it pretty. I mowed my lawn every morning, and I saw my neighbor out there mowing his lawn, and I never thought to talk to him. Did I take full advantage of the situation, or did I get taken advantage of? Maybe the scheme is of tunnel vision. Maybe you're praying for the one, and you miss the ten next to you. We pray for the one, usually a family member is what we're used to praying for, that would come to know Christ. That's great, keep praying, but don't miss the ten people that you share a desk with at work, that you sit next to lunch with. Don't miss the one for the ten. Those numbers favor the devil. I think he would let you get the one as long as you miss out on the ten. Maybe it's a scheme of distraction. Maybe he's okay with you getting, he's okay with the turkey making it on, onto your table during the holidays. He's okay with you making sure you get the presents under the tree and, he, and getting to your in-laws on time. As long as you don't, if you have the opportunity to, as long as you don't mention or talk to someone about the gospel during this time. I think he's pleased with that. Turkey makes it on the table. I think he's okay with that. What about the scheme of insulation? I thought about this one. What about the scheme of insulation when he insulates us, the church? What do I mean by this? Have you ever thought about keeping our church Gilbert's best kept secret? Like you don't want it to get any larger. You kind of like who's here. You know, I'm ready to kind of close the door. We kind of met our quota. You know, no more, no less. I'm kind of just, I like my people here. I like, I like who's here. I like who's here. Let's kind of just incubate together and then let's, let's just ride off into the sunset until Jesus comes back. We can see how, and it's great that we have a great family of culture and of love here. It's great. It's great. It's wonderful. But you can see how the devil can kind of turn that into a monstrous thing against the gospel. We're so content with our spiritual state of affairs. I'm saved. I have all my spiritual I's dotted and all my spiritual T's crossed. So content with who I am in Christ that I don't think about those who don't have that contentment in Christ, who don't know the Savior yet. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a devil playing a scheme of delay. You think that you, either you have tomorrow with someone, or you think that person has tomorrow. Well, we don't know that. Take advantage of the situation. Take advantage of the time you have with them now. Proclaim the gospel. I want to focus on a last scheme. Maybe the scheme of being downplayed or doubt, doubting or being discouraged. Maybe you benched yourself out of the game of evangelism. Maybe you say, ah, you know, third weeks, those, those guys have great stories and they're good at it. They have the charisma and personality for it. I, I'm just not good at it. So I'm just going to kind of ride on their coattails and let, let them handle it. I'll, I'll, I'll do something else. I don't want to get in the way. The, the scheme of being downplayed. Downplaying your evangelistic potential. Maybe you doubted yourself. Again, churches have been in the headlines lately, have they not? And we're not seen in a positive light. It's a more hostile and skeptical environment. Maybe you're just scared of stepping out, proclaiming truth, exclusive truth. Maybe you've been discouraged because you're too busy putting out the fires in your own life, all your issues, that you don't have time or energy to be on fire for the gospel. Maybe you're like, I think God just wants me to focus on growing and growing, and that's good. Growing is good. 
But we all know how easy it is to just grow and never go. Maybe you're discouraged from the results so far, the response of coworkers and acquaintances and family. You've lost things for proclaiming the gospel. You've lost relationships. You've lost status, promotions or opportunities. You don't get that text or invite anymore. You're talked about behind your back. You've lost some respect with some people. You're looked at as the Bible thumper, the holy roller. Don't invite him. Don't invite her. I'm starting to wonder if this is worth it. You feel ashamed. The original audience would have faced huge pressure as well for stepping out for an exclusive um, strength in Christ and God alone. They'd be stepping on lots of toes because, again, back then, religion was tied to every aspect of life. Today, it's more treated as kind of like an extracurricular activity that people can choose to not have. But back then, it was tied to everything. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was used as a bank. Okay? It was tied to all aspects of life, political, economic, social especially. And the problem wasn't a lack of worship in Ephesus. It was that it was everywhere. There was 50 different pagan gods you could worship, gods and goddesses. You could worship the emperor. You could worship the main goddess there, Artemis. There would be celebrations and parades and parties and events that people would invite you to, that you were expected to go to. The calendar was full of worship, just not worship of the one true God. And if you, if you were not a card-carrying member of the local fan-favorite deity, if you did not pay patronage or homage to a certain god or goddess, people would know that. People start murmuring, talking about you. You would invite shame and scorn upon you and your family, maybe. And that was huge back then because it was a huge honor and shame society. You look at Acts 19, write that one down to read about how when Paul was preaching, Christians began to feel convicted about their syncretistic beliefs and began to burn their magic books and scrolls. And what was happening is that people stopped buying silver shrines of Artemis. So it, it, it impacted the city financially. They didn't like that. And also it impacted the city because they were afraid that the temple would be counted as, I'm quoting here the text, Acts 19, people were worried that the temple would be count, counted as nothing, that people would depose Artemis, that she wouldn't receive her worship. Now you can see why syncretism, blending beliefs together, was its real temptation because everyone was doing it. It was a polytheistic culture. And you can, if you were syncretistic, you kind of just stay under the radar. It was the exclusive thing that would have gotten you in trouble. It'd be like wearing your rival team colors and walking into your rival, the rival team stadium, you know, home field, opening game day, and just standing there with your foam finger. It would be like that, that pressure, that shame. Do you feel that pressure and shame? But in light of this, we are encouraged to keep trusting in the strategy. It works. Verse 13, therefore, therefore, Paul says. This is where Paul begins his counter. This is when he, if you're a fencer, you know the riposte, the, the counter, the on guard. This is where Paul kind of turns the tides on the enemy, brings encouragement to us and a boost of morale to the troops. He says that we have no need to fear being alone. We have no fear of being ashamed, for we stand with the Savior. We stand with the Savior. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, stand and stand and stand. The strategy still works. Paul says to take up. Here means where. And the force of the word here means to do it once and for all. Don't practice putting on the armor and taking it off. Practice putting it on 
and then keeping on, keeping that strength and armor of God on, openly display proudly without shame to the world, to those who don't believe, to those who reject the gospel. Now we get to the armor, verse 14 through 17. And normally we interpret this by Paul saying that we should grow in certain areas, certain moral behaviors in our life. What does this mean? Like people would say, like, I think I need to kind of tighten the belt of truth in my life. I need to focus on God's truth more in my life. Or, you know, I haven't been thinking about my identity in Christ a lot. I need to put on the helmet of salvation. You know, I haven't been living out the faith, so I need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We kind of see the armor in fragments, but we've been told that we should see it as a whole system. So I think the focus in my interpretation of this text, of, of the pieces of armor, is that we're not putting on different pieces or moral behaviors. We're putting on one person. We're putting on Christ. He was the first warrior who put on this armor. I think the background of this text, Paul doesn't have in mind only a Roman soldier. I think he has in mind a Jewish one from Isaiah 59. Don't turn there, but just write that down. Some of you might, may have noticed in your cross-references that it, refer, it references Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59, there is a messianic warrior who puts on the armor before he goes and conquers his enemies, before his glory is spread, it says, from coast to coast, from east to west, and the fear of his name spreads, and he brings a message. In Isaiah 59, he brings a message of salvation. He says, any who repents of their transgressions will be saved. A redeemer will come to Zion, it says in Isaiah 59. This is, I think this is talking about the gospel. Not about different behaviors we could put on, but more that when I put on the armor, I openly display before the enemy in the world Christ. I put on him, I display him as I take his message to the world, to those who do not believe. And that's why I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to be ashamed of because I have in me Christ, the one who is honorable, the one who will be vindicated. He will not be disgraced. He will conquer his foes, pay them back. The original audience will have been encouraged by this. But Paul also uses, again, he uses the pagan community's culture against them. He takes their two prized cultural icons, Achilles and Odysseus. And in, in the Greek writings, in, in Homer's poetry, whenever the standing, strong, armored soldier, whenever that strategy is lined up against and directly compared to a clever, cunning uh, full of guile kind of strategy, a scheming, trickster kind of strategy, so Odysseus versus Achilles, guess which one is always seen as dishonorable? Even in their pagan Greek writings, guess which one? Odysseus was seen as dishonorable. It was seen as dishonorable when you have a, if you have a chance to be a standing, strong, armored soldier, it was, it was seen as dishonorable and cowardly to be hiding in the shadows, firing arrows from afar. So what's Paul saying here? Paul's calling the devil a loser. He's saying the devil ain't nothing. The devil is an unworthy, shameful, cowardly foe. And those who are like him, likewise. This would be like the level of insult. Think of like back then kids at recess, the Greek kids at recess. You know, like they're trying to think of what game to play. And they're like, I don't want to be Odysseus. You be Odysseus. I want to be Achilles. And then the kid goes home. He's like, Mom, they told me I had to be Odysseus. That's the level of insult. It'll be like being called Michael Scott versus Jim. It'll be like being called Charlie Brown versus Snoopy. Or if you're a sports fan, it'll be like being compared to the Cleveland Browns. That's the level of insult that Paul is. These are fighting words. 
Okay? And Paul's unashamed in it because the ones who will be disgraced and dishonored and ashamed are not believers. The ones who will be disgraced and ashamed ultimately are those who reject the gospel, who are against the gospel. You have nothing to fear or be ashamed of. The devil is scared of you. He hopes you don't look down long enough to see that the message that you carry, the nuclear power of God to save Romans 1.16, he's like, they could do some real damage with that, couldn't they? And once you start to get it, once you start to get it, you look in your life, I think the devil's trying to keep me from proclaiming here, proclaiming that. Once you start to get it, the devil's like, his ears perk up. He's like, he gets it. Sends his cronies, like, watch, keep an eye on him. He gets it. Keep an eye on her. She's starting to get it. So we have nothing to be ashamed of. We don't stand alone. We stand with the Savior. And we don't stand alone in prayer either. Our fourth point, we pray for others to keep standing and going. Okay? Don't let up the pressure here. There's still commands in these verses 18 through 20 where Paul prays, asking all prayer and supplication to be made for all the saints and for him that my that words, verse 19, may be given to me and open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The emphasis is not only on living out the gospel, but here specifically that you would proclaim it with your mouth, with your words. We need to pray for one another. Pray that we keep standing without standing still. Think of those in your life group. Think of those in your church here who are going through a lot and you're praying for them and your prayers for them are on those things, and that's important. A lot, of, a lot of us are going through a lot of things, but don't stop praying for those things, but don't stop also praying that people go. Keep going. Keep proclaiming the gospel. As I end, we're not saved from a wasteful life. You and I, we are not saved. We're saved from the wrath of God and the punishment of our sin, but we are not saved from a witnessless life. I have to be proactive if I don't want to have a wasteful and witnessless life. And so don't wait. Trust in the strategy. Don't wait for that formal invitation. You have all that you need to get going with the gospel, to proclaim it. You have the armor. You have Christ, the warrior, redeemer on you. You have all you need to successfully stand against the schemes of the devil. Engage in the kind of math the devil hates. Multiplication. Proclaim. Speak that old, old story of what Christ has done for you and for sinners. Let's pray. Lord, help us to keep going. Help us to discern the schemes in our life where the devil is attacking us, not only preventing us from growing, but mostly, Lord, keeping us from going. Going with proclaiming your truth with boldness and courage. God, help us to remember that we have you. We have all that we need to proclaim your truth. That you do want to use us. You want to use us in our weakness so that your strength can be made clear. Help us, Lord. Help those who feel weak in this way. Help those who have gotten their taking their eyes and their focus off of the gospel. Help us to be bold and unashamed, Lord, in a world that puts pressure on your church. Help us help fellowship life here, Lord, be a beacon of your truth and your light that is the gospel, the power of God to save. In your name we pray. Amen.